people should look at their agreements and see who owns what data and, and your ability to use it too. I think anytime you enter into some agreement where there will be data sharing, you know, people define very clearly like who owns that relationship, who owns the IP that comes out of, you know, any insight from this data. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. On today's episode, I've got Dr. Eduardo Harriton back with me. We talk about artificial intelligence to a lot of the degree that I've just had Dr. Bob Stillman on and others that I've talked about artificial intelligence with, but we get into the specifics of what needs to come down in terms of the walls that bar certain technologies and platforms from talking to each other, which is actually what's going to accelerate the progress from artificial intelligence as it applies to outcomes, as it applies to clinical operations, definitely the human impact Dr. Ayrton has a strong opinion on, and we try to break down the nuance of what that is. And then we really disagree on something. Before I talk about what we disagree with, today's shout out is going to go to Dr. Pietro Bordoletto. Haven't spoken to him in a while. Don't know if he still listens to the show, but hopefully he does because he's another one of the rising stars in the field and would love to just get an email from him. With this conversation with Dr. Harriton, we talk about the cost of IVF and what's going to happen in the next five years. I say it's not coming down. Eduardo says it is. It depends on, I guess, how we're phrasing that. And he and I are making a wager. We're still disagreeing on the terms of our wager because, of course, both of us want to be right. We're both trying to phrase it in a way that I'm hedging to where I'm going to be right and he thinks he is. I think I'm right on this. So I got to get with my legalese because I want him donating to my charity, not the other way around. And I'll let you decide. I would love to hear what you think about this argument, debate, discussion that I have with my good friend, Eduardo. I think Dr. Harriton is one of the brightest minds coming up in the field as much as it pains me to say that because I'm jealous that he's got both that crazy business mind as well as your ultra clinical mind. And so you get to hear that discussion being unpacked today and I hope you enjoy it. Eduardo, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me again, Griffin. Always a pleasure. You're back not just because you're my friend, but because I think you're in kind of a unique position. You are a second year REI fellow, about to be a third year REI fellow at UCSF. And you are also, you're in the mix where you're looking at your career, thinking of practicing medicine, also looking at what the future of the field is going to be like and all of these companies and ventures and technologies that are gonna impact it. And so I wanna center our conversation around artificial intelligence, mainly because if you're not the guy qualified to talk about it right now, Eduardo, I think you're going to be the guy qualified to talk about it in 20 years. So why not just have you on early and explore some of these thoughts? I want to start with what are you paying attention to right now with regard to AI technology? 
Thank you so much. I think that's like an overstatement of an introduction, but I'll take it. Listen, you uh, might be miserably underqualified right now. People should, maybe you should just turn it off because here's some fellow talking about the future of the field right now. So I'm not blowing sunshine too hard. I just think that you are going to be the guy. So I will put my, I will bet my ponies on that. I appreciate that. I can tell you what I'm paying attention to is the massive amounts of investment coming into the field in order to bring technologies that we use in other areas of medicine into reproductive medicine. I think when you look at what's happening in not only other areas of healthcare, but around different industries, automation is big. There are a computing power is becoming less and less expensive and the ability to draw insights from really complex sets of data um, is growing and becoming more powerful. And we see that applied throughout healthcare in diagnostics where people are using AI to find different targets for uh, therapies to bring the cost of drug development down. You see it across healthcare systems that are applying AI in order to move patients through that system in a more efficient and effective way to monitor patients in the ICU, to recognize that they are not gonna do well before that actually happens and clinicians do in order to early intervene. And I think people are realizing that in IVF being a very costly and expensive treatment with a growing market and increasing demand that uh, outstrips the supply, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for investment. So everywhere from predictive analytics to the way we stimulate patients to the way we follow gametes in the embryology lab and selects which ones to transfer. I think there's people looking at all of these parts of our fertility journey and trying to apply artificially intelligent solutions in order to improve our process. So when keeping with other specialties of healthcare, how prevalent is this technology? Is it still very nascent? Give us a couple of examples where it is proven and adopted at scale to improve either clinical outcomes or just efficiencies of process. Where is AI being used? Where are a couple specific examples that are pretty established? Well, I think we're not very established anywhere. There's not one company that's taken over or one solution that is used everywhere. I think we're going to get there, but I think we're still in the nascent stage. I think when you ask for examples that are in markets, there are companies that are looking at vision. So convolutional neural networks, looking at embryos to try to not only grade them and replicate what embryologists can do, but to select embryos with a higher implantation potential. And there's companies that are trying to bring those products to market or have those products to market. They have not been widely adopted. And I think that one of the challenges of artificial intelligence technologies is that the models can show benefit, but I do still think that needs to be replicated prospectively. And you need to actually show you know, not that it predicts that it will improve outcomes, but that it actually does. And I think those studies are ongoing in, you know, several parts of the world, but that is kind of the technology that is furthest ahead at this moment. It's the use of computer vision to select embryos with the highest implantation potential, also to select eggs that are more likely to create pregnancies. 
So that's with regard to clinical outcomes. Where else are we going to see AI being applied within a practice setting? Well, I think, you know, to the first part of the process, which is understanding a patient's prognosis. Right now we have some tools, we know their age, their ovarian reserve, we have SART data, we have studies. So we were able to look at some of these tools, which are relatively crude compared to personalized AI. And we're able to say for someone like you with your diagnosis, your partner semen analysis based on your age, I predict that your per cycle life birth rate is 22%, right? Uh, whereas when we take AI and we say, you incorporate all of that data that patient has, where they are in their journey, and you can get a much more personalized prediction. I think that's helpful for patients because it allows them to decide, do I wanna go through IUI? Do I wanna go straight to IVF? What are the pros and cons? What is my own individual expected success rates? And what does it cost? And they can make that calculation themselves. I think it's helpful for the clinic because they can use their own data to try to drive some of these predictions. A lot of uh, clinics are offering risk sharing models where they are allowing the patient to share in the risk of their journey. Uh, they subsidize part of the treatment. Some of them have guarantees and it's much easier to feel comfortable and have your final finance folks feel comfortable with a risk sharing model if you have a very personalized prediction as to what that success rate is rather than a, a rather crude measure. So on the predictive side, we're seeing some uh, folks working on that, that in my mind is something that we could do before with more linear prediction models, but the use of machine learning and, and more complex uh, algorithm makes that better. In order to really personalize those prognoses, technologies would have to talk to each other, wouldn't they? In order to have, in, in order to have better data, meaning EMRs and fitness apps, and all, all the way down to the smart technologies that will appear in the home. So, what technologies are starting to talk to each other now? Or if you don't necessarily know the answer to that, what needs to be able to talk to each other? Well, the answer is not enough because no one talks to each other. And I think you hit on one of the big challenges for the artificial intelligence community and for people trying to work on this. There is no one heterogeneous data set that these models can be trained on. These models are need to be trained on very large amounts of data in order for predictions to be good. You know, training them on our data at UCSF or data of a single institution, even very large institutions, it's not enough because one, in the magnitude of AI, it's not enough data for it to be really good. And then in if I take an algorithm that's built in the East Coast and I bring it to the West Coast or I take it to Europe or China, it's not gonna work in the same way. So what we really need to do is we need to build data sets that have patients from all over the world and you know different ethnicities, races, weights, ages, and see how they do so that the algorithm can know how to react to different situations and weight those. To your point, those do not exist and there are some initiatives to create them, but you bring another good point, which is not everything that matters to your fertility 
you talk about in your initial visits, you know, how much you walk every day, what you drink, what you eat, how you sleep, certainly can have some effects. I think that probably we are further from incorporating those into our data sets that we use. I think most likely the initial models will be more clinically based, based on what a clinic can aggregate. And hopefully what a clinic collects in one area will be easy to homogenize with what a clinic collects somewhere else. Another challenge, most databases don't look the same, even for people who use the same EMR. So there's going to be a lot of work up front at creating these large data sets, but I do really feel like it will pay off in the long run. So even before we create the large data set, let's go down this rabbit hole a little bit of technologies that don't talk to each other. Let's explore the reasons why. I can think of a couple that I hypothesize, one of which being eventually you'll have massive privacy concerns we're already dealing with. Second is that everyone wants their data. The EMR companies want to be able to sell their data and people should be paying them for their data. And the genetics companies think that people should be paying them for their data. And so everyone wants to keep theirs so that they're the ones able to sell it. So I see those as two reasons. Privacy concerns being one at a global level, two being everyone wants to monetize what they have and not give what they have for free and they want to get more of it. What reasons do you see for technologies not talking to each other yet? I mean, privacy concerns are real, but the reality is that when you use these apps or use these products, you are agreeing to, for them to sell your de-anonymized data. So it's kind of happening anyways, for the most part, and you usually can request your data. So that's something that you could pull. I think the reality is that when you participate in you know, wearing a ring or a smartwatch or have some of these products, part of their value proposition to their investors is that they're collecting a lot of data that they're gonna use to drive insights and create a higher value for their investors, for their consumers and, and grow their own individual products. So I think that's right. I, there are very few incentives for those companies to share their data outside of their companies unless it's in a symbiotic type partnership. And, and that creates a challenge for data sharing and for incorporating some of these really large data sets that you know, may help, but we don't know because we have not explored that or incorporated it into the data that we do have. And so who has the most leverage then? Who gets to say, no, our data is worth the most. What do they have to do in order to either aggregate the most data or have it as to, to make their database uniform? Who's got the leverage? I would say that the leverage is whoever can derive the most value for their consumers. So if you are able to create a large data set, you have some leverage there. If you're able to drive insights from that data set and share it with your consumers, then more people are going to come because they're going to want your insights. They're going to want to learn from what their peers are learning from the device that they think it's really cool. From an AI perspective, you know, if you start with a large data set, uh, or you have some sort of relationship or value that you can give someone else for them to share data with you, then you can uh, get other people to perhaps share anonymized data with you. 
Another thing that is extremely interesting is the use of blockchain-based technologies to share data. Um, you know, one of the challenges is that for HIPAA reasons or because you don't want to give away your data for free to someone else, you don't share it. And there are ways on the blockchain to be able to aggregate databases without a centralizing institution so that every participating party can contribute data but can also use other people's de-anonymized data without actually owning it and taking it over so that you can train some of these models in broader data sets but at the same time uh, still be able to own your own data without you know openly sharing it or sending it outside your servers. So those are some approaches that might be able to give us the heterogeneous data sets that we need. But again, to your original point, you know, not all columns are gonna align, not all rows are gonna be the same, not all clinics code in the same way or fill the fields in the same way. So it still takes a lot of data clinic and that is a incredibly time intensive and manual process that we will have to overcome before we can drive what I think are the most valuable insights. Well, uh, there's a rabbit hole question, but it's too tangential. Uh, that I, maybe we can get to it. It's about the actually ag aggregating and making that data uniform. But that lack of uniformity might be the reason why EMRs aren't the direct answer to that last question, who has the most leverage? Because I know as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, isn't the answer the EMRs because they have the most information? But there are so many ways to query so much different information, store different information, EMR. Is that the reason why they might not have the most leverage right now? Because, yeah, they've got a lot of data, but it lives in a lot of different places and looks like a number of different fields. I guess the question is depends on the EMR and what their user agreements are and who owns that data. Because just because I use EMR X, doesn't mean that EMRX can just pull all my patient data and then aggregate it and use it for profit. You know, some agreements might be like that, but some agreements, the data is owned by the individual user. And yes, it's nice that everybody uses the same one. And perhaps there is something there where the EMR says, I'm going to build a product based on all of you guys' data, clinic A, B, C, and D. And then I'm going to give it to you for free because your data helped me build it and I'm going to sell it to other places or I'm going to use it as a reason for new clinics who didn't participate in the original, you know, content creation to come into our network of EMR clinics. That being said, it really depends on how that data is shared and organized. And I don't think, at least to my understanding, that EMR companies can just pull and profit from their clinics data. Would we advise inside reproductive health listeners to check those service agreements upon signing to see who owns the data? I think that, you know, in the 21st century, what we do with data and the insights that we drive for them are going to be hugely valuable, not only for clinics, but for our ability to make better decisions. So yes, you know, my guess is most people do, but if you haven't looked at who owns the data that you're creating in your clinic, certainly something worth looking into and, and making sure that you know 
uh, who's using your data and who's allowed to use your data. So is that true for almost any service agreement then that, that not just EMRs, but should people be looking at that for with genetics companies, with carrier screening companies, with the pharmaceutical companies they buy from, or I guess anyone that would have their data. Yeah, and with inside, you know, with fertility bridge also, I bet you people should look at their agreements and see who owns what data and and your ability to use it too. I think anytime you enter into some agreement where there will be data sharing, you know, people define very clearly like who owns that relationship, who owns the IP that comes out of you know any insight from this data, and that should be very clear up front and something that people should be paying attention because. In many of these cases, I expect that some of these companies and some of these algorithms will be quite valuable. And you want to make sure that if you are contributing to an algorithm or you're contributing data, you get to be part in, of the rewards and, and fruits of that data. You know, most importantly, I think we're all in it to help patients, but your ability to help patients will also be better. and increased if you have the financial means to uh, you know do well what if the service agreement doesn't say anything right now fertility bridge agreements don't say anything about data with regard to centers and we we get some one of the things that we do whenever possible is we do have people agree to not give us protected health information and so from a marketing lens we only get any kind of patient information after the patient signs a HIPAA authorization, which case is no longer PHI. So we don't have any of that kind of information. We do get numbers on, we, we do track volumes and because we want to know if we're driving IVF volumes or egg freezes or recruiting the donors that we're supposed to be recruiting and new patient volumes. So we do have that sort of stuff. It all lives pretty archaically right now in spreadsheets. So it's not like we have a machine to go out and monetize, but how would that look like? What would that, what does it look like when there's no agreement? That one, I'm going to defer to my lawyer friends because I actually don't know the answer and I won't pretend to know, but you know, my only advice is, you know, get a good lawyer and make sure you understand what you're signing, which is probably good in life. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, we I don't, we don't have so much data to, to really worry about. But I think ultimately, even client services firms like mine will have to get into the data game to some degree. And I think it's a lot like how software has been the last 20 years, where in the beginning, there were a lot of people creating proprietary softwares, and some of them really needed it. And very often, a lot of people found that they were much better off just using an off-the-shelf software or some SaaS company that already existed and applying it to either clients or themselves. And so I don't see us as builders, but I do see us, I see even client services firm like mine having to just review the insights that come from data. And when we put together averages right now, they're pretty rudimentary. It's not the same accuracy that one would have if they were all aggregated. So yeah, it, other than you making people scared to, 
to do business with Fertility Bridge when we're like number 197th on the well, 197,000th on the list of people that are actually trying to get data. Who is trying to get the data? You don't have to say particular companies, but in the direction of who's really trying to ag both aggregate and ultimately monetize data from patients and clinics. I think who's trying to get data from you is literally everybody who you touch online, Google, Facebook, Apple, literally every single interaction that you have is recorded and, uh, and studied and used to monetize, sell you stuff or understand you better or serve you better products so that you spend more time. So, you know, at the you know broader level, every interaction that you have in the digital world is studied and likely monetized to some degree. I think on the clinic level, you know, without mentioning companies, there are companies that are trying to aggregate data. There are academic institutions that are trying to create consortiums to aggregate data in order to drive these solutions. Like I mentioned, I think they're still in the early stages. I think the data sets that are being built are on the smaller side. They're usually single center or a few small centers. And the projects that are coming out are more on the proof of concept side. So there are people trying to show, yes, we can predict pretty well how people are gonna do, or yes, we can, you know, help make better decisions in the stimulation process in order to you know, make outcomes better or you know, remove physicians from part of the process or assist them at the least to make better decisions. Or in the lab, we can help embryologists create embryos or pick embryos so that we get patients pregnant faster. So we're seeing some of these projects happening, fertility and sterility, is seeing more and more publications regarding AI and just had a whole, you know, a monthly journal dedicated to AI in reproductive medicine. So I think we're at the early stage. I do think that over the next five to 10 years, we're gonna see a lot larger databases and perhaps more heterogeneous databases come out and, prospective projects where you not only build an algorithm, but actually test it and compare it to physicians or make a prediction and then see what happens after. And that will help validate this concept. And perhaps some of those will come to market and become widely adopted. But I don't know if it's going to be six months or six years. You know, we are terribly bad at predicting timelines, but I do think that in my lifetime as an REI, the decisions that I'm going to be actively involved with in a day-to-day -day basis are going to be incredibly different than some of the decisions that the people who trained me were involved at the beginning of their careers. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. Or Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of consulting for just a, a couple hours would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. 
So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. Without question, in terms of what the timeline will be like and our inability to predict it, I see the same trajectory happening with broadband and voice over internet protocol, VoIP, where it sucked for years, for freaking years. In 1999, we're like, this is, we're, everybody's going to have broadband. We're going to be able to download movies in a second, and we're going to be able to have conversations like we're having on Zoom, right, tomorrow. And then 2005 came, and it still sucked. And then 2010 came, and it still sucked. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if it was... 2017 but all of a sudden it was like well we've all we all have perfect voice over internet protocol right now and good timing too with a global pandemic happening in march of 2020 but it was like where is it why isn't it here yet it, we've been talking about it forever and then all of a sudden it was just here and that's not a very scientific way to to anticipate the advent or growth of of artificial intelligence were past the advent, but I do think that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I think Bill Gates is the one who said that we always overestimate what's going to happen in the next two years, but then underestimate what's going to happen in the next 10 because technology does not kind of advance in a monotonic linear way it advances in an exponential way the cost of technology goes down in an exponential way so you know i agree i don't know if it's going to be two or ten but i do really think it's coming and, and i'm excited to see the impact that we can have on patient outcomes by using some of these very powerful tools we also don't know what the catalytic events will be to speed it up and so Example, I knew that we were moving to a virtual dominant workforce. That's why in 2014, when I started my company, we've been virtual from the beginning. All of my employees live elsewhere in the United States and Canada, as well as do our clients, have never had a physical home office other than the office in my home. And I knew because I knew that's what the direction that we we're going to. And in 2014, it felt like starting a, a, a digital agency in 1999. Like it was too late to do the 
brick and mortar type of route, but it was still like early and it was kind of awkward. And I remember our clients in the earliest years, some of them would be like, oh, she's in Denver and you're in Buffalo and your project managers in Tennessee and your, your account managers in Florida and people didn't totally get their heads around it. I knew that it was moving to that. I just didn't think that there was going to be a global pandemic that made it the status quo. And so what do you think are potential catalytic events? And I understand that I'm making you speculate and putting you on the spot to do it, but that would accelerate the adoption of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Fertility specifically. Yeah, well, unlike you, I also didn't predict COVID and did not invest in Zoom a year ago. Wish I had. But, you know, I can tell you about some trends that I think are definitely going to keep pushing us towards adoption of some of these tools, you know, partly because they improve outcomes, but also because they will improve efficiency and lower cost. I think when you look at the IVF market in the United States, we don't have enough capacity to handle the volume that we need to handle. David Sable gave a very good talk at ASRM a couple of years ago, and he said, we're doing somewhere between 280, 300,000 cycles. And when he sizes up the potential market for IVF, based on the infertility cases we have, the you know genetic disease prevention opportunity, egg freezing trends, and how fast they're growing, we can easily do up to a million cycles a year you compare us to places like Israel where they're doing like, you know, a cycle for every 200, 250 people, Japan, which is somewhere around 300, Europe, which is under a thousand. We do a cycle for 1600 people. So we're very underpenetrated and we have an opportunity to grow our market. There was a, a study by SART in 2016 that showed that on average physicians, REIs did about 130 cycles a year some people do none, some people do a thousand. And, you know, I, I want to meet those people because I'm interested to see what they do. But with about 1,300 AVOG certified REIs, we need to do around 800 to 900 cycles per person, per REI to meet that demand of like one to 1.1 million cycles. Anybody who you ask right now that works their tail off is doing 300, 400, you know, 200 is a lot. So we are not designed to accommodate this kind of demand. Yes, we could work nights and weekends and nonstop for 24 hours. We still couldn't. And have 15 IVF coordinators and never do an ultrasound. And You know, but that's a challenge, right? We need to get more efficient. And yes, we can, we can stop monitoring. We can stop doing you know, procedures, we can stop doing everything, but you still don't still have hit the wall. hours in the day, you're still going to hit a wall. So the reality is, how do we, number one, become more efficient? So what are some aspects of this process that can be automated from our prediction to our stimulation to our embryology lab in order to make this process more efficient? Uh, and that will give the REI opportunities to spend more time with patients. Because I think one thing that does not get talked about enough is that people are still human. Even if you're taking care of 600 cycles a year, those people want to see your face. They want to hear from you. They want to call from you if they're pregnant, if they're not pregnant. And we really have to think very carefully as we redesign the way we take care of patients to not lose that human touch. I think it's important for the patients, 
but it's also important for the REIs. You know, we came to medicine because we like thinking, we like being challenged and we like learning. And if you take all the fun out of it because it gets automated, you're gonna lose REIs as well because it's not gonna be what they signed up for. So it's really important to keep that in mind as we do this. So I think I the, oh, go ahead. Well, let me finish this. I think the other aspect where this is important is part of the reason we're underpenetrated is because IVF is really expensive. Access to care is a real issue. And, you know, ART is still something where um, high socioeconomic status patients have a much differential aspect and it's not something that's accessible to the lower classes. And I think that's a real problem by applying some of these technologies, by removing some of the human component, which is exceedingly expensive and, and contributes a, a big amount to the cost, we will be able to lower the cost of not only an IVF cycle, but of the ultimate goal, which is reaching a pregnancy, because our cycles will be a little cheaper and they will be a little better. And hopefully we will get to um, offer the amazing, you know, the amazing opportunity to start families that, that we offer some of our patients to everybody who wants to uh, have a cycle or, or get fertility treatments. You think that the price of cycles is going to go down? I think that as we incorporate technology and can remove some of the costly elements that we have now, yes, I think it will go down. I think there's also increased amount of payers coming in and that's going to put downward pressure on the price that gets paid for cycles. So that's another aspect unrelated to the AI that will, you know, will push prices down. But, you know, if you want to compete and your payers are pushing what they want to pay you for a cycle down, a way to maintain your margins is to become more efficient. And AI is a way that you can do that. So it does push the price down because of what they reimburse, but they're also bringing so many more people. If we look at markets where that are really progeny heavy and maybe it's carrot or kind body now, but it's employer benefits. When we look at those markets that have a lot of those companies, they are so freaking busy. I mean, you live in the Bay, so you know how busy they are. And it's not just, oh, we're busy on the clinic side, but maybe we're not converting enough people to treatment. They're sm smashed in the lab too. And so... I don't see prices going down, man. What, where are, where's the precedent for that in healthcare of prices going down? It's market power. I mean, you see it in places where there is a, you know, someone that controls a large share of the population. They can say, you know, I don't want to pay you, you know, $15,000 a cycle. I want to pay you $13,000 a cycle. And if I represent 40% of your cycles, you can't lose me. So you will take thirteen thousand dollars. But maybe they can. Like that's the thing. I they might be they might be able to lose because people are getting so busy. And as more employers start to offer coverage in more states mandate, then now it's not just a progeny game. Now it's United and Aetna getting back in because insurance and realize well we're losing all of these employers and so we're we're not getting the cut of any of this. So they start to get back in whether it's carrot or kind body, eventually that particular profile becomes a two horse race. And then if you're in a big enough market, a busy enough market, you could say, okay, well, these, this group has 
Facebook, Amazon, Google, this group has McDonald's, LinkedIn, and General Motors, and this group reimburses 10% higher than the other group, yeah, we can lose the other group. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibilities. Yeah, I mean, there might be some centers that feel comfortable losing a payer because they don't want to do it. And, you know, that's the art of negotiation. You have to know when to walk away. You have to know when you're, what's your bad now or your best next alternative and, and walk away. But my guess is that as these negotiations play out and as these players start covering more and more cycles, they are going to start reimbursing less or they're going to start reimbursing for value or it generally is going to drive what they are willing to reimburse down. You know, some clinics might walk away, some might take the lower reimbursement. Hopefully no one's losing money on a cycle, but ultimately the way to create value here is to lower your cost of the cycle because it's good for you, it's good for your payer, it's good for your patients and and the technology is incredibly scalable. So that's something that will be helpful. I think another part that I didn't touch on uh, where I, you know, AI or machine learning can be helpful is, you know, you might be familiar with this, Griffin. There is an incredible amount of heterogeneity in the way that we practice. There are some standards of care that we follow, but if you go to my clinic and the clinic next door and then the clinic next door to that, we do things three different ways. No one way is better than the other. And we don't know for sure because otherwise we would all do it the same way. And then within a clinic, Dr. A likes to do things one way and Dr. B likes to do things another way. So then the lab has to be always on their toes figuring out which doctor is it? Do they want to transfer this day or that day? What kind of you know extra concoction they want on their media? And at the end of the day, that heterogeneity and lack of standardization is incredibly expensive uh, for the labs. If we apply big data approaches and if we use AI to standardize what is the best approach for a given patient or a given clinic, or maybe we realize that it doesn't really matter, we should just pick one so that the lab knows that when those eggs are coming, they're going to be processed in the same way all the time. You know, on, you know, nothing's going to be 100%. There's always going to be patients that don't fit the mold. So I don't mean to say that AI is going to be 100% better for everybody. We still need our brains and we still are going to have patients that have receptor mutations or don't respond like we expect. And we're going to have to think them through. That's the, the art of medicine and, and where our education and all the years we put in will really matter. But we're going to find that a lot of things we can standardize and that can also lower variability and reduce uh, costs and take that out of the system. So is AI going to be the hammer of Thor that finally breaks down at least some of the heterogeneity in that isn't every other REI an idiot except for the one that <laughs> in the given context at any moment, except for maybe their partners or, or someone else. But seems to me like everyone I talked to, Eduardo, it's pretty amazing. Everyone has the best success rates in the country. It's pretty incredible how they're all number one. And they their competitors are idiots that don't know what they're doing. And I'm hyperbolizing a little, but this isn't something I, that I hear rarely. And so it's also been one of the main challenges in the consolidation that's happened on the private equity side. You have uh, standardization and people don't necessarily want to follow it. And there are some groups that 
could be selling to private equity and haven't. And it's because they want to have that say. So uh, I guess there's a, a marketplace of ideas happening within that heterogeneity. How does AI break the tie? Because physicians are committed to giving their patients the best outcomes they know how to give. And they don't want someone else coming and telling them, I know you do it this way, but I want you to do it that way because that's how you know the clinic that we acquire in X city does it. That's not what physicians are going to respond to. They're going to respond to data. They're going to respond to- But know, why isn't the data from the clinic that we acquired in X city sufficient right now? And what's so much more compelling about the data that comes from AI? Because it's gonna be much bigger and larger scale. Like if you come and you tell me Griffin, like, hey, you know, this clinic in another city does this way and, and they have 3% better outcomes or 10% better outcomes. I'm going to say, well, look at that patient population. They're three years younger. Their BMI is a little bit lower. It doesn't really apply to me. You know, I can't just change my whole protocol based on what someone else does. But when you have, you know, a group that has data from 15 clinics and you aggregate all the data and you say, hey, protocol you know, doesn't matter beyond these two, or the starting dose should be this within these parameters, or this is how we should, you know, do X, Y, Z in the lab, and it's working well across the system, and it's clearly superior, you know, we're all competitive. We want the best for our patients, and we won't respond to a suggestion, or we won't respond to an example, but we do respond to data. We read the journals, and we try to understand how do we change our practice in order to provide the best outcomes to patients? We do that every month and every week and every day. We continue to incorporate data. And I think what AI is gonna do is that it's gonna give us data that is a lot more convincing and powerful because it's a heterogeneous. So from a lot of places, very large and very robust. Another interesting thing that I think will happen is as a field, we have accepted a lot of add-ons therapies. So new medications that make it to market or new therapies or injections because we want our patients to do better. Sometimes what happens is that these medications make it to market and become available to patients before they're truly studied. So before you have a randomized controlled trial that can show benefit. What happens then is that it's very hard to do a randomized controlled trial to show benefit when people can go to the clinic next door and get that treatment anyways, because they don't want to get, you know, the sugar pill or the saline shot. They want to get the medicine. They're spending $15,000, $20,000 and their time to get pregnant is now. So doing those studies is quite hard right now when things already made it to market. I think by aggregating data from a lot of places, from cycles that look the same, other than the fact that one of them use, you know, growth hormone or some other additive medicine and recognizing, hey, this medication really works, but it only works in this subset of patients, or there is no patient where this medication showed a difference, we're going to be able to figure out what actually works and hopefully stop using the words that do not. I want to go back to the human touch part because I've been, it's been cycling around my head because we are at this bottleneck challenge where there's what, 11 or 1200 of you in the entire country. And you talk where maybe we're doing 300,000 cycles and we can, we could be doing a million. To me, a million seems like un, 
on the conservative side of the estimate if, if, if other variables were addressed. And so it, you mentioned, well, people still want to see their doctor. The doctors still want to have that human interaction. They don't want to just be behind a, a screen and managing dozens of caseloads at a time without getting to, to know people. But we have a ways to go before we can meet the demand. There ultimately seems to me like even when we address so many of these other elements that can be that can be taken care of with technology, that we'll still have a very limited bandwidth for the attention of the REI for any given individual. So what are the things, as you talked about, having to be intentional about how AI comes into play and what we're automating versus what remains human interaction? What human interaction do we need to safeguard? And I know it's a general question, but try to be as specific as you can. That is a hard question, and it's something that I, as a believer of AI and as a believer of how fast this market's going to grow and how limited the amount of REIs is, struggle with. On, and I think about it day to day. I think about it in the shower. It's something that I think it's really important to keep top of mind. You know, when I think of some really efficient physicians, you know, you had Dr. Amy on the show you know, a couple of months ago, and she sees hundreds of cycles and has a huge caseload. And she goes out of their way to make sure that every patient feels like she's thinking about them all the time. And she has a process that she set up in order to do that. So thinking about that type of process, I think is important. I think understanding which are the interactions where physicians can add the most value to patient face-to-face -face, and which ones can be perhaps delegated, not to a computer, but to another human, to a wonderful nurse. All, our nurses are the backbone of our industry. They interact with our patients more than anyone else. So helping build that group of nurses and mid-levels that can still make them, give them that human touch without perhaps extending the REI beyond the hours that they have available will be important. And I think that one thing that we're gonna see you know, related or unrelated to AI is that eventually I think patients are going to segment themselves and figure out how much do they care about seeing the REI and how much are they willing to pay for that. I don't think that, a, I think that some places, for example, have NPs that are managing fertility preservation cycles and doing those initial visits. And for some patients, that's okay. For some complexity of cases, that's okay. So rethinking the system and understanding what is the value that we bring is important. And you asked for a specific example. One example that I always think about is the only time in most places where a physician spends a whole hour with a patient is in the initial visit. That visit is where you take a history and you get information from the patient, but you don't have labs and you don't have testing and you don't have anything concrete to guide them. You say, well, if the semen analysis is normal, we'll do this. If it's abnormal, we'll do that. If your ovarian reserve is high, we'll do this. If it's low, we'll do that. If your tubes are blocked, we'll do this. If they're not blocked, we'll do that. And then you spend an hour counseling them on generalities, and then you still need to come back and counsel them after the testing. So why don't we switch that around 
we get some information, do some testing and do the counseling two weeks later when that testing's done or two months later or whenever it is. That is a much better use of physician time. Patients would appreciate it a lot more. And I think rethinking this kind of framework where you go from visit to testing to treatment to hopefully pregnancy and really whiteboarding it and rearranging how we spend our time with our patients so that they feel connected to us. But we also are giving them the most valuable time that we can give is something that I hope happens again. I don't know if it's going to be two or six or 20 years, but I think we're going to be pushed into doing that sometime in the near future. Well, that's a good point that those operational changes though are things that people can do now. They don't need to wait for AI to come and they only help you as things start to become automated. So there's no reason to say, oh, I'm just going to wait until something established comes down the pipeline. The way that people use software, the way that people manage their operational systems allows people to incorporate these technologies as they change. And the example that you gave, I don't know that I have enough evidence to make it our official point of view yet, but we might soon enough because what I'm seeing anecdotally, Eduardo, is that what you described where the initial consult is shorter, those groups actually, those physicians convert more people to treatment because in that initial content, you make it a half hour, for example, and you just spend it telling them, this is what we're going to do next and not go into the contingencies and the variables. The patient is able to digest that information better. I don't know that I have enough evidence to say that that's certain yet, but I'm starting to see more of it. And that's just one example of an operational change that can be made now. And among other things that help AI to come in, I want to, I was reflecting on your answer of why it's so hard to be specific about the human touch answer, what human touch still needs to be available. My philosophy is that the patient needs to be cared for, needs to feel cared for, bottom line. It doesn't necessarily need to be the physician for something. Ultimately, the patient decides what feeling cared for means and how much the physician needs to be a part of that. It isn't the physician that necessarily gets to decide. And I think it's important for people to think, well, what can our team do to make the the patient feel very cared for? But I think the things that we, neither you and I could really quantify have to do with the things that go above the expectation. And when I first got into the field, I asked my clients, if I could talk to some happy patients and just really understand what they liked about the process, what they didn't like. I remember one of our earliest clients, someone talking, they just adored this physician because he walked her to her car. And that there's, that has nothing to do with clinical outcomes. It doesn't even have to do with how you make them feel cared for in the office. It just makes them feel cared for. And so I, as you mentioned the, the struggle to think of something specific, that's why, because it's above the expectation as opposed to being within it that I think feeling cared for. I think it's, that's a very good example. And you hit the nail on the head because it's not the same to every person, you know, so to someone feeling cared for is 
getting a call after each pregnancy test for someone feeling cared for is getting their labs as soon as they resolve for someone feeling cared for is seeing you for their monitoring ultrasounds even though you have a sonographer so you stopping by or you doing it yourself and every patient's different you know i always think about how can i capture in my initial visit what are the things that matter to a patient so that i can go above and beyond for that given patient in the way that they want me to go above and beyond. And so that I'm not calling the person that rather get a text and texting the person that rather get a call. And, you know, I go back to uh, Fertility AQ, ask patients in their questionnaires if they like to a blunt doctor or they like a doctor with a soft touch. And they ask questions like that about what kind of physician or what kind of care do they want to get? You know, I imagine that there are some questions you can ask a patient in your initial intake to build you some kind of profile so that you can make sure that when you're going to call that patient, you talk to them in the way that they want to be talked to, you share information in the way that they want information to be shared. And that might not mean a lot to you because you're just trying to take care of them and your care won't change, but how your care is received will meaningfully change and your patients will, I'm sure, feel a lot more connected and a lot more satisfied, no matter what the outcome of their treatment is. That personalization is something we're getting a lot more into in the patient acquisition journey. And with regard to physician profile, you don't even need to get that preference from the patient. You can share with them. We've got five doctors. Dr. C is not necessarily is, is not the warm and fuzzy type of doctor. It's okay to say that. Dr. C is very direct. If you would like someone that has a, a more of a social bedside manner, choose from one of our other four doctors. People will choose Dr. C. They do it. And that's a bit tangential. I want to kind of conclude, Eduardo, with when you see IVF prices going down because you came on the show for the first time, I think two years ago, it won't be the last time that you're on the show. And I want to know when I can tell you that I was right and you were wrong. So uh, when prices don't go down, when do you think that the price, how long is it going to take for the price of an IVF cycle to decrease? Because I say it's not happening in the next five years. Well, I will say this. I don't know when it's gonna decrease in absolute dollars or what that's gonna look like. I think there's like inflationary pressures that will distort that equation. But I think that in 10 years from now, if you have me on the show again, I think the average American's ability to access an IVF cycle will go down. You know, if even if there's no universal healthcare, the ability of an average American to cash pay an IVF cycle will go down. And it might not be an IVF cycle with the top doctor at the top clinic, because that might still be concierge-like, but their, their ability to go through an ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval and, and basically go through IVF will be more accessible to the average American who does not have coverage. And yeah, you know, you can remind me of this, we can see what happens, but I think that generally, the increased access and all of this technology will drive the cost of a cycle down 
you know, for the people listening to this and worried that's going to obliterate our margins, I think we're going to have a lot more volume. So yes, prices might go down and reimbursement might, you know, put some downward pressure. But like you mentioned, some of these players are bringing an incredible amount of scale. So as long as we keep up and we're able to handle it by incorporating some of these technologies and becoming more efficient, we will be just fine. And more importantly, more patients who desperately need access to our services will have access to them. Certainly hope so. I don't think it's happening in the next five years, but part of the reason is because I think that technology needs to happen before the, because the volume is rising too quickly right now. And the technology needs to get ahead of that curve, you know, and like even being equal to it would take some time. And so I don't see it happening in the next five years. You said you've given yourself a comfortable time period of 10. I want to be right about this because I think in most things between you and I, you will end up being right because you're one of the smartest guys that I know in this field. And I do think that you're one of the rising stars of the field. It's a privilege to have you back on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for coming back, Eduardo. Thanks for having me, my friend. Good to talk to you, Griffin, and look forward to seeing what happens in five or 10. (laughs) Sounds good. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.